I'd like to welcome everyone signing on with us right now, Facebook Live, or on our podcast online later. Thanks for joining us this morning. All right. How we doing? Couple goods. Great, really? Awesome, awesome. Any like, nah. Any thumb down weeks? Any any thumb thumbs down weeks in here? It's kind of a sideways. Any sideways thumbs this week? Couple thumbs ups this week? All right, that's good. That's good. I'm excited to preach today. I am. Um, it's my great joy to welcome you. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at Dwell Church. We're in, a, in the middle of a sermon series called Freedom in Discipline. This month we've been delving into spiritual disciplines in case you're not familiar with the term. Spiritual disciplines, they're, they're spiritual exercises. They're exercises that form our spirits. And the end goal, this is, I think we just need to, need to start here. The end goal of the Jesus tradition is not getting into heaven. It's getting heaven into us. It's permitting the, the heavens, the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, the way of Jesus to invade our souls so that we can hold more of heaven right now. And the spiritual disciplines are part of this process. They're part of the journey for us. So we're created in the image of God. Genesis says we're created in the image of God, but being made into the likeness of God takes actually a lot of work on our part. We're partnering with God and forming our souls. So it requires that we are trained so this is what we do. We engage in spiritual disciplines that strengthen our character. They strengthen our spirits over time. And what happens is we're, we're, there's this kind of collision with God over and over and over again. And he offers us wholeness and power and new freedom. So this is what we're jumping into for the month of January, discovering freedom in discipline. And this month we're hitting some of the less popular disciplines. Two weeks ago I spoke about uh, finding freedom or discovering freedom in simplicity Last week, I spoke, spoke about discovering freedom in silence and solitude. It's too fun. I encourage you to go back and listen to both of those messages if you missed them on our Facebook page or our podcast or the website. Next week, I'm going to preach on finding um, freedom or discovering freedom in celebration. And then today, I want to preach a message entitled Freedom in Confession. Freedom in Confession. If you've been around our church for a while, maybe you've noticed I love to preach story. Anybody noticed that before? I love preaching stories. It's my favorite preaching style, in fact. It's, it's to read a story from Scripture and then to retell it back to you. And hopefully you see by the end of it that the story is not about people that existed thousands of years ago. The story is actually about you. I love approaching Scripture like this. And I try to do it, this approach as much as possible, actually. But for some messages, for some topics, this approach feels forced and I was, I was processing confession this week through story, and it felt like I was trying to squeeze it into something. So I'm not going that route this t today. In preparation for the sermon, I was doing circles around this idea of confession. And I noticed quickly how it stirs questions and it stirs curiosity. It even stirred some discomfort. And it does so because when we, when we jump into the spiritual discipline of confession, when we start having this conversation, it's not black and white. We wish it was. We wish it was like just super simple cookie cutter concept. It's not like that with confession. You can't really talk confession without just diving headfirst into the deep ocean of theology. 
So that's what we're actually going to do today. And to put you at ease, in case that sounds overwhelming or intimidating or maybe even boring, theology simply means to think and talk about God, which actually makes it very simple and very basic because I talk theology with my four-year-old daughter. But it's also, it also means it's imperative because how we think and talk about God shapes our reality. How we think and how we talk about God, it affects how we relate to God. It affects how we relate to ourselves. It affects how we relate to other people. So at a foundational level, if we have dysfunctional and empty theology, it will no doubt produce dysfunctional and empty living. Does that make sense? That's what happens. Because the way we live in the world, the way we order our world is in direct relation to how we think and talk about God. The two are absolutely connected. Now, I want to preface my sermon with this. When we jump into theology, especially concerning salvation and redemption and atonement, things like this, theology has a kind of pick-your-poison way about it. Everything that we put into boxes is going to fall apart eventually because we can't define ultimate reality. We can't compartmentalize and organize and explain away the divine and the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have the conversation. It doesn't mean we don't ask the hard questions. It doesn't mean we don't use the brains that God gave us, these severely limited brains, to have the conversation, to think about him. We still, as best we can, attempt to do our best approach to these questions and to these, what's going on with theology. But, but hold, because I, this is what I found. Holding our faith responsibly, it requires we ask the really hard questions. If we're not asking the hard questions, I'm not sure how much we're taking our faith that seriously. It requires a little bit of doubt, because when you doubt, you ask the hard questions that push you closer to Jesus. Not the doubting of, like, I don't believe you, but the doubting of, like, I want to know you more. Like, what is this? Where is this coming from? We ask questions like, what the heck is this universe all about? Like, really? What is this all about? Where is all of this thing headed? And how do we fit? into its ever-expanding, ever-evolving narrative. Like, where, where are we in all of this? It's crucial that we ask cre- the questions like this, but we also have to realize this. The, my, my mentor used to say, the only way we can have our ducks all in a row is if they're all dead. That makes sense? <laughs> Humanity loves ducks in rows. We love control. We like order. And God really resists lining up under our control and lining up behind our order. And that's probably why we crucified him, because he didn't line up, right? All that to say, today I want to ask you to think with me. And it's not that we don't think on other sermons. Sometimes you can just show up and just like, the story's going to wreck me and I'm just going to like be in it. And today I want you to, I want to challenge you to like, to, to use your brains The Apostle Paul encouraged followers of Jesus, he said, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Think about something in a new way that transforms the way you live your life. And I want to invite you this morning to think with me as we allow God to transform and renew our minds as we unpack confession. Now, to start, I remember when I first heard about the discipline of confession, not just like confession in general, but the the spiritual discipline of confession, a particular question came to mind. Isn't confession a Catholic thing? Anybody ever asked that one? It's okay. <laughs> Maybe you sit here and you think, come on, Josh, isn't, is it confession reserved for a wooden box and a priest who absolves people of their sins? Or maybe you've thought, isn't confession for Catholics because we're Christian 
Anybody heard or thought that one before, maybe? There's a couple layers to this response here. First, after, after Jesus ascended back into heaven, his followers started creating structure and order. And eventually they became the church. And eventually the church split into three branches or traditions, the Catholic, the Orthodox, and the Protestant traditions. And then eventually the Protestants split, and then they split, and then they split, and then they split. And now there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of denominations of the branch of Protestant, of branches of Protestantism. So while we don't even know how many denominations there are or types of churches there are in the world, those who follow Jesus, those who walk in his way are his church. Does that make sense? The Christian church. So Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, they all sit under this umbrella of the Christian church each with its own form, each with its own tradition, each with its own structure and practice, but all Christian, we are the church of Jesus. Okay, then, so isn't, isn't confession a Catholic tradition thing, not a Protestant tradition thing? Great question. I don't think so. And the reason is that confession shows up all throughout Scripture, and it's used for many different purposes and in many different contexts. Scripture doesn't limit the spiritual discipline of confession to a wooden box with a priest who absolves people of their sins. In fact, what I'd like to submit today is that if we limit confession to a wooden box with a priest who absolves people from their sins, we will miss the freedom found in confession. Because it's not a Catholic thing, it's a follower of Jesus thing. And I would even go as far as saying it's a healthy human being thing. All right, so let's say I buy into this confession thing because it's scripture. Next question, to whom do we confess? This is what I was doing. As I was putting my sermon together, I just started with a list of questions because I wanted to like dig into this thing. And if confession shows up all over the Bible and it's used in different ways and it's not reserved for a wooden box, to whom do we confess? Or put differently, where do we point our confession? That's a great question, too. The problem is we can't really answer that one or respond to that one or address that question without going another layer down. So I'll ask that question. What are we confessing? If confession offers some level of freedom or liberation or divine healing, to whom do we confess and what are we confessing? And these two questions build the frame for the rest of the sermon for where we're going to be headed. It's all going to sit in here. So for my type A's in the room... I'm going to give you the skeleton right now for where we're going for the rest of today. What you find in Scripture, a holistic look at the text, is that healthy human beings offer confession to God, confession to self, and confession to others. Confession to God, confession to self, confession to others. And we see scriptural confession used two ways, primarily. Declaring what we believe and acknowledging where we've messed up. So confession doesn't just mean to admit failure. It also means to declare or submit or to announce what we believe to be true. So confession scripturally is both declaring what we believe and acknowledging where we've messed up. This is the satellite view on confession right here. Now this is the framework. If this is the framework... Confession to God, confession to self, confession to others, in those two ways. If this is the framework for confession, can you see how healthy human beings might engage in confession regularly? This is what healthy individuals do. They're comfortable enough in their own skin to share their beliefs, 
and admit when they fail. If you're a boss, isn't this what you want from your employees? Tell me your honest thoughts about how we're doing as a company, and please let me know when you blow it. Isn't this what you want from a significant other? Or a friend, show up, not how I want you to show up, but actually show up how you are. I want to hear what's in your heart, and I hope you can admit when you make decisions that break stuff. This is how healthy human beings engage in the world. Now, what the church tends to do, primarily the Protestant church, but just Christian circles, is we tend to limit the spiritual discipline of confession to acknowledging where we mess up to God. But that's one-sixth of this equation. So if there's healing and freedom found in confession and we limit it only to acknowledging our sin, acknowledging our failure to God, I wonder if we're only experiencing one-sixth of the freedom and the healing that's offered to us. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to peel back these layers of confession as declaring what we believe and acknowledging where we've messed up to God, to self, to others. Does that make sense? This is, the, this is where we're going for the day. All right, so let's start with confession to God and then declaring what we believe. One of my favorite moments in Scripture is known as Peter's confession. It's found in Matthew 16. Jesus asks his disciples, this is kind of further into his ministry, he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, "Ah, some people are saying John the Baptist. Some people are saying Elijah. Others are saying one of the prophets. And Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, he responds, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says back to him, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against that. Now, check this. We don't have to believe in Jesus to follow Jesus. We actually see this with the disciples. He invites them onto the road to follow him, and they get on the road and follow him. And it's not until, like, way later in the ministry that they even know what's going on. Multiple times in the story, you hear them, they're like, who is this guy? (laughs) They have no clue. Jesus says, come follow me. Come follow me first. I'm inviting you to the path. Learn from me. You can do that way before you believe him. This is why I think Jesus realizes if we stick close enough, he's going to prove himself to us. He's going to earn our belief. But eventually, eventually, he asks all of us this question. Who do you say that I am? Not who does your mom or your roommate or your best friend or your pastor say that I am. Eventually, Jesus will ask you, who do you say that I am? And this passage in Matthew 16 is fascinating because Jesus reveals that there's some mystical connection between hell's power weakening and our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's intriguing. Your confession that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the one who existed in eternity that he formed the world, he, he formed you in your mother's womb, this confession, this expression of belief will be the foundation of the church. And it's going to play a significant role in defeating hell's power in your life. We've all heard words have power, but Jesus appears to be saying these words have way more power than you think. Freedom from the power of hell exists in this confession. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In confession, we declare what we believe to God, and we're offered freedom. You with me? 
Yes? Okay, okay. I know we're thinking here. We're going for it. All right, let's do acknowledging to God where we've messed up. Have you ever thought, you know, I know the story of the cross. I've heard the story a whole bunch of times, but it doesn't really make sense. Christianity bets the farm on the cross, right? We disagree on a lot of things, but we bet the farm on the cross, on the resurrection, yeah, but the whole story seems to have some plot holes. You ever thought that? It's okay. (laughs) I have many times. Okay, so God exists in eternity. He creates everything, including humanity, man and woman. They eat from this tree that they're not supposed to touch. Sin enters the world. They start breaking everything and destroying everything. But now, God has to send his son to the world to die on a cross so that we can go to heaven and not go to hell. If someone was writing a book or a screenplay and they shared this with you, they just this was the pitch, you'd probably go, eh, I don't see it. Doesn't really make sense. And I want to be candid. I agree. <laughs> the way the church has presented the gospel for so long is empty and confusing. Have you ever asked why? Why did God have to die on a cross? It's often communicated like there's some, this is so, I mean, I remember sitting in, in school and, and, and even beyond when I was in ministry asking this question, man, it seems like this is how it's been communicated, that there's some big book in eternity. And then once humanity sinned, God opened it up and he's like, oh, crap, now I have to get murdered on a cross. Where's the book? Where does this rule, where does this code come from, this one that God is bound by? I agree, the message is confusing, and it's actually not the picture I see in Scripture. The picture I see that just leaps from the pages. In eternity exists this this divine community. We call it God. It's our best word for it. When Moses asked, who are you? He's like, I am who I am. That's the answer. (laughs) You You want to know who I am? I am who I am. I am being. And and this divine community, we read it in Scripture in Genesis. It says we. It, they says, it says we, in our image, not my image. In our image, this divine community, we call it God. It creates out of its bursting and full joy, and and this divine being creates everything, including humanity, and it gives humanity free will. The 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 decision to choose love, the decision to choose sin. But that's a volatile word, right? Sin. What is sin? Anyone been hit over the head with that word by a Christian before? What is sin? Sin is the breakdown of our wholeness. Humanity was created. It was intended. It was designed to be whole. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, socially, the whole thing. We were intended to be whole persons. And sin takes our our capacity for wholeness, for, for goodness, and it pressurizes it. It coats it with rust. It puts cancer all over it. So what sin does is it convinces us that broken ways of living won't break us. That broken, fractured ways of living won't produce broken, fractured lives. You see, God creates, but in order for the world to be a world, not a simulation, but a free world, he gives humanity freedom to choose love and to choose sin. And when we chose sin, it entered creation like a virus, And it started slowly and savagely eroding everything's capacity for wholeness. So what God does is he responds with salvation. But there's another loaded word, right? Volatile. 
What does salvation mean? Anyone been hit over the head by that word with a, from a Christian? What is salvation? It doesn't mean getting into heaven. The way Jesus uses it, it translates new life. It means an outpouring of wholeness. And here's the thing. This is what I played with for years. Jesus could have chose whatever method he wanted for salvation. God could have caused salvation using a sermon or a miracle or the practice of a spiritual discipline or through jump roping. Imagine Jesus doing double dutch. He could have caused salvation the way back to wholeness any way he wanted, but he chose death. Why? Jesus tells his disciples, there's no greater love than when someone lays down his life for his friends. God chose death to reveal his furious and limitless love for humanity. And crucifixion was the worst death of its time. The Romans had it perfected. How can we cause as much pain to a person as possible for as long as possible until they die? Like we hold them from dying as long as we can while causing as much pain. God chose this, the cross, to be the way of new life, the way of freedom. So here's the thing. Adam and Eve aren't the only ones that chose sin. We often blame, man, Adam and Eve, why'd you guys get to go screw everything up? We would have done it. Eventually, one of us would have chosen it. And ever since, we've continued choosing broken ways of ordering the world, broken ways of ordering our lives. We continue to break creation. So maybe you've asked before, why do I need to confess to God? It was Adam and Eve that screwed up. The answer is because every day, every one of us breaks his creation. He made it all. Life and beauty and love, nature, relationships, people, animals. He made the whole thing. And we choose actions that break down the wholeness that all of it was created for. We're sinners. And by that, I don't mean evil people. I mean destroyers of wholeness. Destroyers of God's good gift to us. And here's the thing. Healthy individuals realize if you break someone's property... If you break someone's art, you should at least admit it and apologize for it. Now, here's the amazing thing about God. We don't need to acknowledge our wrongdoing to earn his forgiveness. We acknowledge our wrongdoing to accept his forgiveness. It's really important we get this. I don't believe sin separates us from God. Not anymore. Before the cross, sin separated us from God. After the cross, sin separates us from ourselves. And the big struggle now is overcoming this illusion of separateness. You're no longer separated from God. The cross did something in eternity. It shattered something in eternity. Theologians and pastors like to talk about, like, we know what's going on and what happened at the cross. We have no clue what went down on the on the cross. Something shattered in eternity. I bet we got like 1%. We understand 1% of what actually happened. Something victorious, something atoning, something redeeming, something breaking. I don't know. And in that moment, forgiveness was offered for every human being that has ever existed and will ever exist. So the issue now is one of receiving the forgiveness that's already been offered to us. And that happens through confession. God, I'm broken. I need you. So when I confess to God, when I acknowledge my wrongdoing, my, my inclination to sin, when I can admit that, 
it puts me in a position to receive God's redemptive work in my life. Because if I don't think I'm broken, I'm not going to ask God for help. If I don't think I break things, I'm not going to ask him to heal me. Confession tells God, please come make me whole because I can't do it on my own. Please free me from my tendency to break things, from my tendency to break the world you so intimately created. In confession, we acknowledge where we've messed up to God and we're offered freedom. You with me? Declaring what we believe to God, acknowledging where we have messed up to God. Now to self, confession to self. You guys doing okay? I know we're thinking a lot here. We're going for it. I like this. This is fun. So we need some espresso. Slinging spros. Okay. Slinging spro. That's, yeah, take notes. That's a good one. Slinging spro. When we talk about declaring what we believe to ourselves about proclaiming what we consider true, what we're talking about here is self-talk, self-encouragement, self-coaching. And you see this with David throughout the Psalms. He sings to his own soul. I love it. He's like, why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. God is the king. He's your strong tower. He's your source. He's your shield. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Why so anxious? Why so depressed? Put your hope in God. We see David confess to himself what he believes to be true when he's stressed out, and it inspires him. It lifts his heart. Or Paul in the New Testament, he writes, don't be anxious about anything. Thanks, Paul. That's really helpful. Anybody ever read that one and be like, sure. Don't be anxious about anything. But with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and his peace will guard your heart. All right. Then, and this is the answer to how you cannot be anxious in anything. He says, then whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, think about these things. It's really interesting. Paul suggests that your anxiety is a result of your thought life. That there's a connection between your stress and the running commentary you confess to yourself. So he suggests, you're going to have a commentary running, right? It's hard to shut the commentary off. If you're going to have a commentary running, allow it to be full of things that are true and pure and lovely. And when you do that, you experience freedom in these moments. Your soul gets lifted because you had the courage to confess to yourself what you believe to be true. Not just what you're feeling in a moment, not what we can simply see in the natural, but courage to confess what you believe deep in your bones. We're teaching this to Aria right now. She's four years old, and sometimes she's afraid to go to bed at night. She's laying in her bed. She'll call me in. Daddy, come in. She's like, I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm like, all right. What's true? We've taught her this. I say, what's true? And she says, God protects me. Yeah. Our house is safe. Yeah, that's true. Mommy and daddy are right outside my door. Mm -hmm. I have a tent full of really silly stuffed animals. That's all true. And I can see her spirit lift. 
as she's confessing to herself what is true, her spirit is inspired in the moment. And this happens with us. Paul says, let the running commentary be what is true and pure and lovely. In confession, we declare what we believe to ourselves, and we're offered freedom. You with me? And then acknowledging to others where we've messed up. Here's what I've noticed in church circles. We can admit at a a theological level that we need God's salvation, but then we can deny the actual places of brokenness. Sorry, is it to to ourselves? Confessing to self where we've messed up. I've seen a lot of Christians that will admit kind of like blanket statements. Sure, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I need God. Thank you for forgiveness. But then ignore how we're holding on to resentment towards that person or how I belittle people because it makes me feel good about myself or how I can justify lust because I'm not cheating on my wife. Yeah, sure, I need help. I need, I need, yeah, God, I need you for salvation. But then belittling the actual help that I need. Confession, acknowledging where I've messed up to myself, it pushes back against denial. It pushes back against justifying my broken ways. Take addiction, for example. One of the, if not the primary roadblocks to recovery is denial. If someone can't admit that they need help, If they can't admit that their ways of living are broken, they will not change. Some people don't want to take an honest look in the mirror. Some people believe they're in control. Some people think the addiction isn't harming anybody. Some people think they're the victim. No matter the reason, until they can transcend denying, until they can transcend justifying the problem, they'll never experience the freedom from coming out of under the weight of that addiction. And sin works very similar. We can say a prayer because we want to get into heaven. Anybody learn the sinner's prayer? That's nowhere in the Bible, right? We can learn some prayer because we want fire insurance because we don't want to go to hell. But then when it actually comes to living our lives, new lives, whole lives, redeemed lives, we can deny and justify how broken we are. So admitting our brokenness, our tendency to to self-destruct to ourselves Maybe our even enjoyment of sin. Sin is fun for a season. When we could admit that, we could look ourselves in the mirror and we can name our brokenness, we can call it for what it is. It sets us up to be made whole. Now we have a shot at salvation, new life. So in confession, we're acknowledging where we messed up to ourselves and we're offered new freedom. You with me? All right. Declare what we believe to ourselves, acknowledge where we have messed up to ourselves, and then to others. Now, maybe you ask, why the heck do I need to confess sin to other people when Jesus has already forgiven me? And to that, I respond, I have no clue. I'm just joking. No, I have a good clue. (laughs) Let's start with declaring what we believe to others. What we're talking about here is witness. Following Jesus is entirely about witness. But once again, another volatile, loaded word. What does witness mean? Ever been hit over the head by the word witness from a Christian? I have. What is witness? Well, let's start with what is not. 
It's not holding big yellow signs at sporting events, yelling through a bullhorn that people are going to hell. Nobody gets saved like that. Seriously, I don't know one person that was like, I was going to a, a Kings game and I was just living my crazy secular life, drugs, sex, all the whole, the whole deal, you know? And then I saw this sign. It was like, you're going to burn in hell. And I was like, I need to change today. <laughs> I've never met someone that had that story. When we read scripture about Christians witnessing, they're not telling people what to believe. And they're not even really talking about eternal destination. They're sharing what happened to them. They're confessing their experience, their encounter of Jesus the Christ. Look what he did in my life. I'm new. I'm whole. He saved me. And he could do it for you too. Like this is witness. Erwin McManus, he's a pastor here in L.A., he was once invited to a, a, a conference that was like a, it was a conversation, and it was at Columbia University, and the subject was what can be known. And the, 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 the conversation was between Erwin, the, one of the university's premier scientists, and the head of the Department of Humanities, who's a Kantian philosopher. And, and Erwin says they had this fantastic discussion, and then when they got done, it went to a time of Q&A. And he said, I, he said, I was watching the three-by-five cards pour in all to me. Because he's like, I was the only Christian there. This is one that was posed to Irwin. When you were a child, you had imaginary friends like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and God. Why did you get rid of your other imaginary friends and keep God? I probably would have walked out of the room. <laughs> Dang. You want to hear how he responded? If you have an imaginary friend who somehow transforms your life, makes you a better human being, moves you from arrogance to humility, from greed to generosity, from hate to love, if you have this imaginary friend and he changes everything for you, he makes you the kind of human being you've always wanted to be and you've never had the power to do it on your own, do not, I repeat, do not ever give up on that imaginary friend because that imaginary friend is the most real thing you've ever known. Drop the mic, walk away. Man, that's witness. Not repent and burn or burn. It's come and see what Jesus has done in my life. And I don't even want to limit that to verbal witness. The church needs to get better at witness through action. The most persuasive witness you can have is not the way you live. It's, it's not the word you speak. It's the way you live your life. And this is why Christians have ruined their credibility. So many public claims that contradict their lifestyle. That's why we so often hear, you Christians, you're such hypocrites. I'm confident if, if the church committed to living the way of Jesus, the way he actually instructed us to live, those who don't know Jesus, those who aren't familiar with his way, they would look at us, they would look at Christians, and they would stop saying, look at them, they're worse off than we are. Instead, they would say, look at those Christians, see how they love each other? See how they beautify everything they touch? What's their secret? That's confession. In word, in deed. Look what Jesus has done in our lives. And this kind of confession, it invites everyone into freedom. In confession, we declare what we believe to others, and we're offered freedom. You with me?
Lastly, acknowledging to others where we've messed up. I want to come back around to the, the branches of the church, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant. I'm Protestant. I grew up Protestant. I'll always be Protestant. I love my tradition. But acknowledging where we've messed up to others is something we suck at. I've known a lot of Protestant friends who have given our Catholic brothers and sisters a hard time about confession, but they've got a well-carved path on this one. We've got a lot to learn from them here. What do we see in Scripture? There's this passage in the book of James where he writes, this is so good, is anyone among you sick? Ask the elders of the church to pray for them, and the prayer offered in faith will heal the person. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. To clarify, we don't confess our sins to each other to be forgiven. That's what the cross was for. We confess our sins to each other to be healed. This is some wild theology. That in some mystical way, God has weaved the healing of our souls into the practice of acknowledging where we've messed up to other people. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He communicated that, that the more isolated a person is, the more destructive sin will be in his life. This is what he wrote. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Sin wants to remain unknown. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. We are not intended to do life alone. Or I think of Dwight L. Moody. There's a story about this conversation he was having with a friend over the fire in the cool of winter, and the man was attempting to convince Moody that being involved in the church is no better for your faith than if you were outside the church. You just be a Christian all by yourself. And after the man was done ranting, Moody grabs the tongs, and he pulls a hot coal from the fire, and he sets it to the side. And they, it starts to cool, and they both watch it as it burns out. And the man looks at Moody and says, all right, you made your point. <laughs> Or think of one of Aesop's fables from the 6th century. A lion used to prowl about in a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them. I love this language. Many a time he tried to attack them. But whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a quarreling among themselves. They fell a quarreling among themselves. And each went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end of them all. Or the old African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. For some reason, many Christians have come to believe that me and Jesus can do my life without the rest of y'all. That he can fix me without any of you. I've yet to find support in Scripture for individualistic Christianity. Our sin wants to hide in darkness and it whispers to us that it should remain unknown. When we keep sin in darkness though, we give it permission. We feed it. Please fill me with toxin. Poison my entire being, my relationships, even my physical body. But when we confess our sin in the presence of those we trust, and that's really important, Confessing our sin to people we trust, because there are a lot of untrustworthy people in the church, because <laughs> the church is made up of broken people. So I'm not just saying stand up here and just tell everybody what you did this week. We're talking about talking to someone you trust, 
when we do that, our self-justification just starts to crumble. We get humbled. And we watch sin lose its power over us and over the community. And I've seen this happen. When we realize sin doesn't have its hold over me, stuff has power when it's in the closet. Another one of my quotes my mentor used to say is like, sin will have power over you when you, the skeletons, it'll, when you let it hide in the closet, it's going to have power over you. But if you bring it out and let it dance at the party, it's got no more power. Sin does not want to be known. It wants to hide. But there's something powerful here in confession. Confession deepens our friendships with each other. It breeds authenticity in our community. It keeps us humble before God, before ourselves, before others. It keeps us sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. What does this actually look like? We find someone we love, we trust, we acknowledge our brokenness to them, our failures. This is how I fell short this week. Maybe it's that recurring sin you just can't get past or the thoughts that haunt you or the temptation you love to surrender to. We offer that to another person as a gift, someone who has proven themselves trustworthy. And then we pray for each other. We ask God to, to soften our hearts so that we can be sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. We ask for healing, that sin's power would be, would be crumbled in our life, that it won't gain traction and in this practice, we see healing start to rest on us. In confession, we acknowledge where we've messed up to others, and we're offered freedom. You with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And a couple people for prayer to back to the, the connection table. We're going to go into a time of response in worship through song and prayer. I don't know what's going on right now in your heart, um, what God is, is stirring in your mind. Maybe you connected very much with one point or with all six points, or maybe God's speaking to your heart about something that has nothing to do with the sermon. I want to challenge you right now to be responsive to the work of God in your heart regarding the discipline of confession specifically. I want to walk through this. Declaring what we believe to God. Jesus, you are the Christ the son of the one true God, declaring what we believe to self. Why so downcast, all oh my soul? Put your hope in God. He's your source. He's your strength. He's your strong tower. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Declare what we believe to others. Look what Jesus has done in my life. Acknowledge where we've messed up to God. Jesus, I'm broken and I break things. Please come save me from myself. Acknowledging where we've messed up to self, I will not justify. I will not deny my brokenness. I'm going to look at it in the face and I'm going to name it so that through God's help I can transcend it through the power of the Spirit. And then acknowledging where we've messed up to others, I've sinned. Again, I've chosen brokenness. I've chosen destruction. Please pray for me. Ask God to heal me. This is what I invite you into this week. To declare God's goodness, to declare his power, to declare his truth, and to acknowledge your brokenness and your powerlessness to heal yourself. To find freedom in confession. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for our acceptance as part of your family. We're grateful that we're redeemed in your presence, that we're made whole in your presence. 
Thank you for the cross. So we confess you are God and we need you and we need each other. So pray in this moment that you would come and move in our hearts, that you would release the grip of hell over us in whatever ways it is. And may your wholeness, may your life, may your joy, may your freedom abound in our souls. We ask this all in faith in your name, Jesus.